you are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Win Win Podcast. If you've been a listener since pretty much day one, you'll know that we are unafraid to talk about literally anything here, but sex and sexuality and sexual wellness especially. We've heard from women on all sides of the spectrum and dialogue when it comes to approaching some of the issues within sexual wellness, one of them being Eva Goykoshea of Maud, as well as Nisreen Hasib of Unbound, and, and many others. Even in Vanessa Colella's episode, who is Chief Innovation Officer at City, she compared a career in innovation to dating, so definitely no taboos here. What we haven't had yet is actually a doctor come in and get to see that perspective of the conversation, so today we have the unbelievable, well-credentialed Lindsay Harper, who is the founder behind Rosie. Rosie is the first of its kind platform offering women a holistic approach to sexual health and wellness. They have a community platform with videos, stories, and classes around sexual education and wellness, as well as Rosie Telehealth, which connects community members with medical resources and professionals. In true doctor fashion, they use evidence-based approaches to figure out the types of solutions women need and really focus on answering some of the tough questions like, If I would rather organize and reorganize my books in alphabetical order, by color code, and by width and length of the book than have sex with my husband once a month, is that normal? But all humor aside, I think Lindsay really tapped into the problems that close to half of women experience questions around their sexual drive and sexual wellness and just don't have those conversations. She's building the kind of product that can use technology to quite literally transform someone's confidence and their well-being and enable them to live the rest of their lives authentically and meaningfully. And when women take care of themselves, they are better able to achieve their potential and innovate and change the lives of others in return. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and definitely check out Rosie on meetrosie.com to support Lindsay and the game-changing work that she is doing. Hi, Lindsay. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm pumped to be here. Me too, especially because you're the first doctor I have had on my podcast. But in addition to being an OBGYN, you have some of the fanciest credentials next to your name, MD, FACOG, and IF. So how did your medical career start and what drew you to the OBGYN field specifically? Yeah, they don't feel so fancy to me, but I appreciate that. Um, You know, it's interesting as a young girl, I always, my answer to what do you want to be when you grow up was either a babysitter or a doctor. And, you know, I've just always had this side of me. I love science. I truly think that the body is magic. I'm just like a huge science nerd. And so um, going through school, I was always drawn to that. But I also love, I'm very relational. I love to, um, you know, make close relationships with people. And so that all came together for me 
in medicine. And then in in um, medical school, I just loved it. I loved birth. I love surgery. I love the long-term one-on-one relationships that you get to make with your patients um, as an OBGYN. I love women's health, super passionate about it. And I'm so thankful every day for the opportunity to get to practice medicine. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, specifically with OBGYN, what were the stigmas and the reactions to you wanting to pursue this aspect of medicine, both good and bad? You know, it's funny because the biggest um, the biggest deterrent that people communicated to me was the lifestyle. I mean, and being an OBGYN does not have a good lifestyle for anyone who's wondering. Mm. You know, you carry a pager and you're depending upon your call group, you're, you know, at the hospital all the time because, you know, you have patients that go into labor at any hour of the day. And, you know, I always also knew that I wanted to have a family. And so there were a lot of maybe older, maybe women of older generations, you know, who were questioning how that would be possible. And I think for them, maybe it wouldn't have been, but luckily, you know, we live in a new time where there's lots of support and I've always had tons of support around me in terms of, you know, caring for my children, making sure my home is still standing. And, you know, so I think that while that is a huge challenge and and being chronically sleep deprived can be a real problem that if, you know, if there's something that you want, you're going to make it happen. And that's what I did. Yeah, no, and I believe you have three children, right? So you're definitely making it happen. (laughs) And I know that you did your residency in Texas where one in five women are uninsured and there's an increased risk to maternal mortality in the year after women gave birth. So when you were working in the state and in the South in general, were you aware of this? And did you feel limited in your ability to help all of the women living in the state or maybe empowered on the other side of that? You know, as a physician, I think we all feel limited in our ability to care for as many women as we want to, or as many patients generally. And the barriers to caring for uninsured and underinsured people are even greater, right? Because you have um, obligations to your practice, to your, you know, loans, to your um, your family, and you know, caring if you're if you have a large population of uninsured or underinsured patients, that affects the bottom line 100. percent So there's a lot of questions and, you know, really missioned questions about how you want to practice as a physician and, um, and what that looks like in my hospital, um, uninsured and underinsured patients are cared for no matter what, right? So they walk through the door and oftentimes now as a hospitalist, so I left private practice when I started my company, Rosie, and now I practice as a hospitalist. So I care now a lot for that specific population. Um, so who whomever comes to the hospital and doesn't have an assigned doctor, that's who the hospitalist takes care of. And so, you know, um, that practice makeup looks different. And that's just the fact of the matter is that, you know, when you care for insured patients, it looks different than when you care for uninsured or underinsured patients. But I think that I'm proud to say that I always provide, of course, the same level of care. And and now even as a hospitalist can um, spend even more time with those patients because I have a shift. And at the end of that shift, I go home. And sometimes, you know, there's extra 20, 30 minutes where you get to sit down, unravel someone's complicated medical history and say, you know what, maybe here's a resource, or maybe let me interpret that CT scan that you had two years ago, but never really understood and what the implications of that were. And I think that's really what's missing in the medical model today is the 
build in and the value as it relates to the education of all patients and the difference that that can make in their healthcare outcomes. And honestly, that's a huge passion of mine and and one of the reasons that I started my business. So it's not a, a large leap to to think why I would value it so much, you know, in those hospitalist shifts and I'm I'm really I those are really meaningful moments for me when I go into work today. Yeah, and we'll definitely talk all about Rosie. I think something else I I imagine that you noticed in your practice and in your work throughout your career is that 38% of women in the United States have sexual problems and issues, including a decreased sexual desire. So, you know, how did you notice that? And what do you think is the root cause of the statistic and the stem of this problem? Yeah. So I really, my patients told me about it. (laughs) I hadn't, um, I hadn't been trained. So, you know, you spend a lot of OB residency and training, learning about pregnancy. You spend a little bit learning about menopause. You spend a little bit learning about cancer and, uh, you spend a lot learning about surgery, um, and contraception and STIs, but, and, and significantly too, anxiety and depression, which I've always been like super sensitive to with my patient population, but you don't really spend any time at all learning about women's sexual health, women's sexual dysfunction. I in fact spent more time in the erectile dysfunction clinic as a medical student than I did in my whole entire time of training on any type of women's sexual health. So, you know, it didn't occur to me that this was going to be part of my practice, which is incredibly naive. But what was happening is that when my patients were saying, Hey, Dr. Harper, like love my, love my partner, love my husband, but I literally don't care if we ever have sex again, but I miss that part of myself or that's causing a lot of relationships problems or like I had a great orgasms when I was 25, but now that I'm 40, they're really hard to find or they're diminished. And it's just, you know, people are just not living up to what they consider their fullest potential. And so when I started to encounter these questions on a really regular basis, I did not know how to help them. I didn't have like my little framework, which is mm-hmm. how I always operate. Okay. First this, then this, then this, then this. And if I can't do that, then I refer, you know, that's sort of how, how I practiced. I had none of that for these patients. And so started asking around, what do you do for, you know, low desire? What do you do for um, trouble with orgasm? Nobody really had great answers. And what had been sort of passed down through generations of, of physicians was like, drink a glass of wine, go on vacation, get a new partner. Like these are the things that we were routinely saying, not because these doctors are bad people, but because they just didn't have resources. And that's sort of the narrative. And Mm so I started getting irritated about that and kind of angry. And I just didn't feel like I was doing a very good job. And I do not like that. I like to do a really good job. (laughs) (laughs) And so I joined a medical society called ISWISH, which stands for the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, and became a fellow of that organization and became really like obsessed with this topic. It's like a perfect field for me because it it combines so many aspects. It combines medical care. It combines mental health. It combines relational health, just all the things in this really holistic model of health care, which like should be attributed to all areas of health. But this is one that where it has to be. And I just really started to dig into how widespread of an issue this is, the inequities between the um, solutions available for men and those available for women, the undertraining of physicians in this area. And I just felt like that once I had that realization that I had to do something about it. Well, it's interesting that you brought up that some of the initial responses were go on a vacation and have a glass of wine, because I actually think that that's like 
I think that raises a larger question of like, what is the conversation around sexual health and sexual well-being? And I actually read that somewhere that you said that your superpower is being able to talk about orgasms and sex without (laughs) blushing, which is, by the way, very impressive and commendable. But to what extent do you believe that the innovation that is needed in this space is rooted in disruption around those conversations and stigmas to do with sexual health versus maybe some of the solutioning? You know, I think that it's just like any other field that has been neglected. So I think that mental health is actually a great example Mm -hmm. where it's like, hey, before we all realized how important mental health is to our overall health and relationships and our level of satisfaction and our long term, um, you know, morbidity, how how much innovation was done there? Who, Mm. from an insurance perspective, who covered it from a, um, you know, technology perspective, who innovated in it? Like until everyone realizes number one, how widespread of, of a problem, a certain issue is. And number two, the sort of systemic effects of that problem, then there's not going to be anyone that understands the potential market size and then therefore the funding opportunities, the innovation opportunities. So I think that for us, from all aspects of this, from the business side, the physician side, the patient side, it all starts with education. And, you know, I feel like a broken record as one does, you know, when they're very passionate about something that not everybody else knows about, that you just say the same things over and over and over. But I don't know that I'm ever going to be able in my lifetime to have enough minutes to say them enough. We have to just right. find our our communities to amplify these messages, right? Because it can't be done by one person. It has to be all of us joining together to say, hey, this isn't right. Women deserve better. And, you know, we're all going to work together to make that happen. And so you did just that. You took off your lab coat after 10 years in the medical uh, space, and you became the CEO and founder of Rosie, which is a tech community platform, which has videos, stories, classes around sexual education and wellness, and also Rosie Telehealth, which connects community members with medical resources and professionals. So I guess getting to the solution, why do you think tech is the solution and, and this kind of use of tech as a solution? Yeah, you know, I was when I was training to become a fellow in sex medicine, I learned all the evidence based interventions, right? So there are medications, there's therapy. But something that was sort of mind blowing to me are how these pieces of information could change people's lives, right? Like, so I can educate a woman about the sexual response cycle or about the way that most women experience pleasure or about, you know, how we can use erotica as a, as a tool to improve our sexual health. And that piece of information can be as life-changing as a medication or as something else. And because we have such a deficit, a general deficit, number one in women's health, number two in in sex ed and sexual health, that's where it has to start. We're not all starting from an even playing field of, okay, well, I tried all of this, all of these educational pieces. I already knew that, for example, for mental health, I should meditate. Like it's kind of like the equivalent of that, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody knows this stuff. And so we, that is where we have to start. That is where the biggest opportunity is because those simple interventions are obviously very safe, right? There's no medical risk um, and can be life-changing for women, for their partners, 
for the future of their families. And so I really wanted to get that information out there as quickly as possible. And so obviously technology is the way to do that. You know, tell tell your friend this easily approachable, safe platform has, you know, all these different resources that were created by doctors and therapists specifically for women with sexual questions and problems that needs to exist in the world. And the fact that it hasn't for so long, you know, is heartbreaking, but okay, I'll take, I'll take you up on the opportunity. Yeah. And, and you sure did. I, I guess what I wonder is, you know, when you look at the startup space, it's such an industry now where, you know, people launch three or four companies before they become a founder or they have a tech background. You have a very traditional background, which is medicine. And then you came in as a, as a singular founder. So how did you approach really starting that company? And, and what role does your CTO, who is coming from a technical background, play in your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, that's a that has probably been, you know, especially an early challenge for me to just even learn the language that is product, that is technology. It's like a whole other degree. And of totally. course, my my firstborn daughter personality, went, I'm like, I need an MBA. Like I need I need to figure all of these things out mm-hmm. that I don't know, but that's not the way being a founder works. You get to learn on the job and you've got to just jump in. And that's what I did. I, you know, we just started working on obviously product from the beginning. I partnered with a development shop and they helped kind of work through those first early stages and taught me the language, taught me the processes, all of these things. And so, you know, I've never been obviously the one leading sort of the technical decision making. However, I have always been the one leading the vision of the product, leading the mission for the company. And when those things are very clear, um, you know, the technical side, while never easy, becomes more straightforward. And it's just that, you know, that those um, skills of communication and organization that really come into play and that, you know, luckily I, I do have those skills. So that does work to, right. to our advantage, but it, it has been a huge learning experience and continues to be so. And that's the thing about being a founder. As soon as you learn one thing, there's 10 other new things <laughs> to learn. But I think that's, I mean, that's what I love about it. I don't want to do anything where it kind of is the same and things get really mundane. And so I'm, I am up for new challenges. It's probably my blessing and my curse because mm-hmm. things never calm down, but um, that's okay. I'm in a phase of life where I have a lot to offer and I'm, I'm happy to do so. So as a new kind of product manager and, and CEO yeah. and founder, what, ha- what would you say have been your biggest learnings or, or takeaways that you would share with somebody who's interested in product or starting a company? Yes. Oh my gosh. There are so many, right? I think always stay close to the person for whom you are innovating. I think that that's probably the biggest and best and most like heartwarming lesson. Like I, as a physician, I think this is interesting actually from my perspective, because I, as a physician spent a lot of time telling women what I knew was best for them based on my medical training. We would always, of course, use like a shared decision-making process where I would never be like, this is what you've got to do, but more like, this is what I would recommend. What do you think? How does that land? When it comes to product, it's much more innovating from that person's perspective, for that person specifically. And you have to really dive in to their whole journey, where they're starting, how they're feeling, why would they turn to a product like yours? What do they want to do for how long? I mean, just the whole entire process to immerse yourself in it. I think that that is probably the 
I love that. I love thinking about it in that way. I love staying in really close contact with our users and really just women everywhere from their perspectives, women that aren't our users, like what's going on for you? You know, how can we be helpful in that case? So that's definitely a big learning. Um, I think from a more, you know, from a higher level perspective, but there's, there's learnings that happen every day. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) As a physician, you get to have the conversation and there's a reaction and a back and forth. And with product, I mean, it's, you see people drop off on the journey and you're like, wait, don't go. We want to talk about it, but you can't because it's, it's definitely less multifaceted than, than actually having that physician experience. So, so that's really, really interesting. I guess the other question I wanted to consider was, you know, Rosie and the nature of your work is targeted towards women, of course. But something that I've seen in my life and my friend's life is the importance of having men and partners understand and empathize with the experience of women's health, right? And I think without that support and acknowledgement, this becomes a quote unquote woman's issue and not a health issue or dare I say it, a human issue. So what do you see as the role of men and other allies in helping you innovate this industry? Yeah, I think you've looked at our product timeline, possibly. Um, No, I think that it is really important. And that's the thing. You know, it's not the responsibility of just women, you know, to know this information. And in fact, women aren't the only ones who want to know. We have partners reach out to us all the time because they truly care about their partner. They truly care about the intimacy within their relationship. They want to open up those lines of communication, but aren't sure how and don't have the tools that they need to do that. So I think there's a huge opportunity. And truly obligation for us um, in the support of partners in this field, not only for those people maybe as end users, but also in support of the women that we primarily serve, not to just put all that responsibility on their shoulders, but to try to once again address another pain point that they're having and and help their partners through the journey as well. So I think there's, you know, we have we have partners email us all the time and hopefully we'll be able to answer that those needs through product um, at some point. I'm very excited to see what does happen on your product roadmap. <laughs> um, something else I've, I've thought about is we've seen a lot of players come up in the women's health space, ranging from pregnancy and meditation solutions. We've actually recently had the amazing Natalie Walton of Expectful on our podcast. Uh, companies like Maud and Unbound exploring the sex tech in terms of products and even menopause, which is finally being addressed as a real issue. So why do you think the industry and venture capital is finally ready for these businesses, which have had historically such challenging stigmas around them? You know, I think that I've thought about this a lot, right? Because medicine sort of, I would say, parallels venture, right? Like, why has medicine been so behind on women's health? Why mm-hmm. are we Why are we only creating drugs and, and funding, um, you know, things like infertility and, you know, and cancer? And it's, right. it's because, you know, it's because of the stakeholders that have been involved in those decisions and those treatment pathways. I don't think that traditionally you know, men in medicine. And I, I mean, I'm have a lot of men in my life. I'm not like man bashing, but you Mm -hmm. do address the things that are 
the most and most immediately apparent to you first, right? And so if there's not a woman who is, you know, helping to write the textbook or who is helping to develop the protocol or who's deciding which, you know, things get funded, then no one's there to speak up for the fact that, hey, I really don't want sex as a real issue rather than like a she, she, quit whining and complaining issue. Right. And I think that that's the, I mean, unfortunately, I think it's the same across the board. I think that luckily it's the way that we're moving. As you mentioned, obviously we all want to move there faster now that we have this societal, you know, recognition that there's been such a deficit for so long. And, you know, I hope that that's the way that things will continue to progress until we see, um, you know, equal representation, not only within gender, but in all aspects across the board. And so how have you tackled fundraising? Because I know you have successfully fundraised. How are you able to kind of get over that hump? What was it like for you? And, and do you have any strategies you can recommend to other women trying to do the same? Yeah. I mean, so fundraising is never easy. I don't think like, I'd love to talk to someone for whom fundraising has been easy, but I haven't so far. So I think just knowing that going into it and not letting the hard days mean more than they mean, right? Like it's supposed to be hard. It's, there's a reason that someone doesn't just come and give you your whole round like day one. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's really a test as a founder. It helps you get your, it helps you get your vision clear. It helps you really work through all of the hard questions that maybe aren't your strong suit, or maybe you haven't fully fleshed out or developed. And so there, when you look at it as a meaningful process that gets you from not only financially point A to point B, but maybe even founder maturity level of point A to point B, I think it becomes much more tolerable and also much more, you know, meaningful because you're not just like trying to mark something off the list. You're thinking, oh, well, why are all these people asking me these questions that I don't know the answer to? Clearly, I've got some more work to do. So Mm. I think that it takes a long time. I would say for every no, this is advice, some good advice that I got. For every no that I got, I asked for at least two more introductions. Um, And that way you never feel like you're running out of places to ask or turn. Um, And also is very diligent about keeping records. Um, so I had, you know, a very fleshed out pipeline, um, and still I'm actually raising right now. So I'm doing all the, I'm doing all this again, but, and then kept really good notes about like, if it was a no, then why? And also communicating updates to all those people so that whenever it's time for me to raise again, you know, I have that, those contacts ready to go. And they know that I do what I'm, what I say I'm going to do. They've watched me perform. They've seen the growth of the business. And so it's about, you know, it all comes back to relationships for me, just like anything else. And fundraising is no different. How can, how can I show you that, um, you know, through my actions, I'm going to be a, a, be a good bet for you. And, and so, and just proving that out as much, as many times as possible. And when you come back to them and you have the answers to those questions, I think yeah. that obviously that speaks to a lot more than just, you know, uh, following through, but it actually shows that you're moving in that positive direction, which I know is really important with venture capital and fundraising. Something else I, I wonder about is as the role of policy in your industry specifically and, and whether you see yourself and or Rosie getting into that world, because obviously in order to, to innovate there, you need to be changing not just your product, but really the government policies as a whole. So any thoughts or, or plans there? 
You know, it's really an, a timely question. Um, so recently I did become involved with an organization who's working on women's health policy at the governmental level. And it's, I mean, I feel like I'm starting out at the beginning of product development again. I'm like, oh my <laughs> gosh, there's so many nuances. There's so many, you know, steps. Everything takes so long. It's different. It's the exact opposite of innovation and technology. It's much more like medicine where it's like, man, you have to measure your success in millimeters and certainly not miles. And so I think that for my personality who likes to get stuff done, it can be a little frustrating, but I do recognize that, you know, we have an opportunity to um, lead the conversation when it comes to women's sexual health. We've done so definitely on a smaller level when it comes to getting even the even the concept of women's sexual health included in the women's health conversation. Two years ago, you know, I went to a conference um, all about women's health and women's sexual health wasn't even on the agenda. Wow. And I had to like, I was like, the, like my head was about to pop off. I'm like, how can we call this the name of this conference? And we're not even talking about women's sexual health. So, but that has changed subsequently because I was like, you know, in a tizzy. And so I think that, you know, as this sort of storm cloud or tornado, if you will, starts to accumulate and starts to spin faster and faster, we will see inroads. We will see more insurers covering um, women's sexual health visits and medications. We will see more pharma companies investing in um, drugs that, that women need and should be available to them. We will see employers interested um, in supporting, you know, the holistic health of their employees. And so without those, those advancements, then you're right. In order to achieve, you know, meaningful scale, it's going to be a challenge. But I, once again, I, I feel like women's sexual health particularly is, you know, the, the younger sibling of just mental health in general, and that will follow that same trajectory. And, and in a few years, everyone will understand, you know, how important it is to the core of who we all are. So to continue off that crystal vision, I'd love to ask you one last innovation question. And that is, where do you see yourself and your industry in one month from now, one year from now and 10 years from now? <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So, you know, one month from now, I I see things that probably pretty similarly to how they are today, but we work every day um, to create new content for our users, to develop meaningful partnerships, um, obviously working on raising this round so that we can continue the work that we are all so passionate about on a day-to-day -day basis. So just definitely, I mean, to me, that's what being a founder is all about, putting one foot in front of the other day after day after day. And that's how you see that those measurable differences accumulate over time. Um, when we talk about a year from now, you know, I definitely want um, Rosie's reach, obviously, to continue to expand in the way that it has been over the last year. We've definitely seen some um, very exciting growth trends um, and are excited to continue to move forward both here and, and potentially incorporating some other uh, markets as well. Um, and we're also launching, you know, a bunch of new product um, opportunities where we can really 
um, hyper-personalize the experience for our users, which I think is a super exciting opportunity for us in this space. And then in 10 years, you know, Rosie, in my mind, represents the evidence-based, you know, holistic brand that women can turn to for all their sexual health needs. And I want that to be a global opportunity. I know that, you know, we have a lot to do here here in the United States, but there is even much more opportunity and need for innovation across the world. And I would be so honored and thrilled to lead um, that charge in a way that I would feel, you know, is a very sort of culturally responsible, um, medically and and ethically responsible um, in a way that I am confident. And actually, we have data to support that can make a big difference in women's lives. Lindsay, if somebody can do it, it's you of that, I'm sure. (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and the story of Rosie. I'm really excited to see everything that's coming out for you and the company. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This was great fun. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.